we're going to kick off episode 351 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear with the song In the Hall of the Bachelor. It is from the St. Petersburg surf band, The Slop Tones. It's their EP, Planet of the Bachelors, came out on Christmas Day last month, last year. Wow, time is flying. Anyway, check out the EP when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks to the Slop Tones for giving us some music to play this week. And I am thrilled to have you along for the ride. Now, last year, man, I keep saying last year. It feels so weird to say that. We're in 2018, y'all. Anyway, last year, I recorded a lot of of content. I got ahead of myself and I did that on purpose because I knew the holidays were coming and there's a lot of stuff that happens this time of, well, this time of last year, this time, a lot of stuff happens in mid-November through the end of December, through the very beginning of January, actually. I got my wife's birthday, my birthday, Christmas, New Year's, all this stuff happening and I was worried I wasn't going to have time to record anything. So I made it a point to record as much as I possibly could. What that has led to is me having a backlog of material, which is great, but what you're going to hear this week is something that I've been sitting on since June of 2017. (laughs) Big thanks to Stephen D. Sullivan for being so patient with me while we've been sitting on this recording of him and I talking about the 1968 film Curse of the Crimson Altar, also known as the Crimson Cult, also known as Crimson Altar, also known as who knows what else. It's had a whole bunch of different titles. Anyway, it's a Boris Karloff film. And I really enjoy this movie. I fell in love with it pretty much from the first time I saw it several years ago here in Portland. And well, after Steve and I got done recording about the rallies for last year, you know, the award show that we do every year here honoring the best in sci-fi, horror, and fantasy cinema from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, well, we decided we had to record about Curse of the Crimson Altar. Didn't necessarily decide that we had to sit on the recording for six plus months, but nevertheless, you're going to get that recording now. Now, ostensibly, the recording is about Curse of the Crimson Altar, but we kind of meander a little bit, kind of go all over the place. And I think by the time you're done listening to our conversation, you'll have learned a little bit more about my sensibilities, Steve's sensibilities, kind of where I'm coming from when it comes to my enjoyment of this movie, what Steve thinks about this movie, what he truly thinks about what we need to bring to the table when we watch a movie like this. It's, it's a fascinating, it's a fun conversation. I had a blast editing it. I hadn't listened to this conversation since we recorded it back in June. So a lot of it was a surprise to me. Not that I have short-term memory or anything, but I mean, it's six months ago and all the podcasts I edit. Anyway, that's happening this week, but that's not all we've got. We've got some feedback, which we're going to get to in a second. And, you know, being 2018, you know what this year marks? 200 years of Frankenstein. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was published January 1st, 1818. I think I'm not overstating it when I say without this novel, the classic monster movie subgenre, monster movies in general, would not be the same. Not that it's the only thing that influenced, you know, the subgenre, you know, not taking anything away from the German silent films or Dracula, but really even some of the German silent films or even Dracula, you know, would not be as, I don't know, just there's something about Frankenstein. It's special. And we're going to start celebrating Frankenstein here on the show. I'm going to get into more details about that later in this episode. But why don't we get to some of that feedback that I mentioned? I have a voicemail from an old friend. Hello, Derek and Monster Kid listeners. This is Anthony Wendell of the Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. 
and monkeysfightingrobots.com. I'm just calling to wish our good brother D a happy 350 podcasts on Monster Kid Radio. Dang, man. Just dang. If anyone could do it, you could. Way to go. I wish you a happy 2018 and look forward to discussing the best and worst monsters that we, once we get together. You take care, sir, and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Here in a bit, I'm going to play the promo for his book, The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack, which is currently available on Amazon in print and for your Kindle. I'll also make sure there's a link to his page over at Monkey Fighting Robots, which is a really cool sci-fi geek nerdery style type website. He's written over 400 posts over there since he's been part of that team. I need to get him back on the show. Anthony, my man, you know, we keep talking about having you on and, you know, last year we were going to do a particular movie and it just never worked out timing wise. Let's make it a point. New Year's resolution style. Let's get you back in Monster Kid Radio, sir. Thank you for calling in and thanks for the kind words. You know, I wouldn't hit 350 episodes if not for, well, people like you and people like all the other guests that have been part of the show and everybody who listens to the show. It means so much to have so many incredibly talented and passionate people that have come onto the show and supported the show. I mean, you guys and gals rock. Anthony, you're the man. Thank you. Now, that's not the only piece of feedback I got. I actually got a message through our Patreon page, which I thought was kind of cool. This message came from Nicholas B. He writes, hey, just wondering if you might do an episode on The Shape of Water. I haven't been able to keep up with new episodes over the holidays, but I just saw the movie, and I really want to hear you discuss it on the show. Well, I haven't seen it yet. I want to... But again, it's that whole scheduling thing that I mentioned. That said, my wife Brenda and I are trying to make plans to see it. Might even be able to see it as soon as this weekend. And yeah, I was planning on talking about it here on the show and and maybe kind of roping her in. And, you know, some other people that you've heard on the show, they may be joining us. And if that happens, you know, I'll bring my recorder along and yeah, I, I would be happy to chat about it here on the show. Thank you for sending me a message here through Patreon and supporting the show. We also got a message through Facebook. This comes from Jason P. Just thought I'd say hi from a new listener. I was listening to another podcast, the Six Foot Plus podcast, which if you haven't heard, you might check out as they play a lot of monster surf and horror music. MKR was mentioned on their newest episode, so I looked it up. Seeing Troy Howarth on an episode about Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism was all I needed to see. I've been a fan of the movie and have owned that German DVD of it for years. So far, it's the only episode I've heard, but I plan on going back through the archives. It's nice to see more podcasts that take more of a scholarly look at horror, and you have a great voice for hosting. I've enjoyed what I've heard. Jason, thank you so much. The Six Foot Plus Podcast. It's an awesome show. I actually got some inspiration from them back when I was starting MKR because they played all this cool surf music. I was in love with it and I wanted that on my show too. So they inspired me. And you know, a while back, Strange Jason and I, we were communicating about having him come on the show to talk about horror surf music and just communication kind of broke down a little bit. I'll reach out to him again, New Year's resolution style. I'm going to reach back out to Strange Jason and yeah, listeners, you need to check out Six Foot Plus. It's a great music show. Jason, thank you for reaching out to me here. And finally, I have one other bit of communication that I got. This also came from Facebook. Listener Scott P. left a comment on a photo that I had posted. I had updated my banner image on Facebook. Anyway, he asked, did you ever finish covering the Mummy sequels? So the original Universal Mummy movies, I love them. I adore them. And 
honestly, I've been wanting to talk about them more here on the show. We've talked about The Mummy, the original Karloff film, which is amazing. And then the first two Karis films got talked about here on the show as well. And the person I was working with to have come on the show to talk about those two Mummy sequels, the intention was always to have him come back on to finish the run. Well, he was doing a podcast at the time and it kind of fell away and I, I hope he's okay. I haven't heard from him in a while and, you know, it's been quite some time. So when I told Scott what had happened, he responded with, you could have someone like Steve Sullivan sub for him to finish them out. I love those movies too. Well, I just got done talking with Steve earlier today about this and yes, it's going to happen. Steve Sullivan is going to join me to talk about the final two films in the Universal Karis run. There's four movies. And I always mix them up. We've already done The Mummy's Hand and The Mummy's Tomb. So Steve is going to join me for The Mummy's Ghost and The Mummy's Curse. Both films came out in 1944. Chances are you're going to see these represented on the rallies later this year as well. And we'll talk a little bit about the rallies later on in this episode for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, thank you for reaching out to me, Scott, and kind of giving me the, the poke that I needed to get Steve involved with doing these. And honestly, Steve's actually asked me about doing these mummy movies before, and I've always kind of put them off because I you know, had this thing set up. But you know what? Let's do it. I need some more Karis in my life, and it sounds like some of you do too. Okay, that's a lot to get to. That's a lot of talking. Let's get on to some more talking with Steve. Like I said, I recorded this conversation back in June. So some of the stuff we talk about, like the movie we're talking about, we're going to go see that weekend after we get done recording. Yeah, that's, that's come and gone. And I think it's on blue right now. Uh, so it's been a little while, but these movies are sometimes timeless. And I'd like to think the conversation that I'm having with Steve is time. Okay. Actually, you know what? That's probably taking it too far. Why don't I just shut up and we'll move on right after this. <laughs> I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by the Tingler. And now may I show you a few scenes from the Tingler? Often has this happened to you. You're on your way home after a long day when suddenly tragedy strikes. No human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. Yes, sir, there's a big lizard back there and he's heading this way. Now get aboard! It's the kind of thing which can ruin your weekend. To prevent catastrophe, you need the Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. This book features extensively researched methods to help you survive a giant monster event. 
You'll discover which vehicle you should use for making your escape, which method of counterattack is best for specific types of monsters. Hydrogen weapons, capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the earth, are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies and what common mistakes people make while fighting back. So pick up your copy of The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack by Anthony Wendell today on Amazon. You can thank us by surviving. Konga. Not since King Kong has the screen exploded with such mighty fury. Defying bullets, bombs, rockets, standing a hundred feet tall, sending an entire civilization into panic. Konga, in color and spectimation. Hi, this is Sarah Karloff, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited and they may spoil a movie or two you know how excited monster kids can get sometimes if monster kid radio spoils a movie for you do not come whining to me i cannot stand whines listeners when steve and i were talking about a recording for the rallies and this movie came up just kind of in passing conversation i got really excited because steve seemed to express some I don't know, genuine affection for this film. And really, The Curse of the Crimson Altar doesn't get as much attention as I feel it does. So I jumped on the opportunity to talk to Steve about having him on the show to talk about it. Stephen D. Sullivan, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, sir. Hey, it's great to be back. I feel like I almost never left. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, only, it's only been a couple of weeks, <laughs> it feels like, real time. Although, I guess... Now that I'm thinking about it, it's a completely different computer system, so maybe it was more than just a week or two. You know, I love having you on the show, though, so you know, I'm not complaining at all. I've said this before. I'd be on every week if you want me. (laughs) I I enjoy the show that much. (laughs) Well, this episode actually won't be going out until... Well, for a little while, actually, I may be sitting, I may sit on this one for a, a bit. So when listeners hear this, maybe it'll be a long stretch before we have Johnny. I, I don't know. Who knows? We'll see what happens. So all the topical things we're talking about will no longer apply. <laughs> That's right. So what's going on for your June 3rd weekend? No, just <laughs> <laughs> going to see Wonder Woman. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Right. What, what are we talking about? Oh, right. Let's talk about a movie called Curse of the Crimson Altar. Yeah, well, that's one of its names, apparently. There are others. There are others. Okay. IMDb calls it just the Crimson Cult, but apparently Curse of the Crimson Altar is the original name, so I don't know. Yeah, that's how I first came to know it was as Curse of the Crimson Altar. I think I've talked about this on the show in the past. I've introduced it as well at the Lovecraft Film Festival. Uh, I think in the early 2000s at the Lovecraft Film Festival, I first saw this film it was my first time seeing it on the big screen i mean that was oh lucky you, know, you oh it was amazing to see it that way on the anniversary of the night they burn lavinia morley many strange and sinister dreams are experienced but are they dreams or are they the signs of the curse of the crimson altar How are these wild parties and an antique dealer investigating witchcraft connected with this house of horrifying secrets? Get out. 
Go while you can. What mysteries live within these ancient walls? Who is Robert Manning looking for? Why is he in danger? When will he find the hidden truth? I am Lavinia, mother of the mysteries, keeper of the black secret. Lavinia's influence has spanned the centuries, maintained her innocence up to the very end. They didn't believe her and burned her at the stake. Many people have died mysteriously, horribly. But there's always been a link between those who burn Lavinia and those who die. My brother stayed here, didn't he? My brother Peter. Tell me what happened to him! Curse of the Crimson Altar brings together the two masters of horror. Boris Karloff, Christopher Lee. Mark Eden in his most powerful performance. I know there's something wrong going up in that lodge, and if you're not going to help me, I'm going to do it myself. Barbara Steele as Lavinia, Queen of Terror. Michael Goff as her unwilling slave. And introducing Virginia Wetherell, guest star Rupert Davies. Curse of the Crimson Altar. What ghostly legend was he caught up in? Who was the living link with Lavinia? Why was he tormented by these ghoulish nightmares? Fine. When did this frightening fantasy become startling reality? This is a very deep cut. Do you know it looks as though you've been stabbed? I think I was. I remember going in, not really knowing too much about it other than, hey, it's got Christopher Lee and Boris Karloff, and I guess there's a Lovecraft thing. And I came out arguing with somebody about who was better, Boris Karloff or Bela Lugosi overall. <laughs> I don't know why, how that happened, because Lugosi has nothing to do with this film. Right, yeah, no, nothing at all. But over the years, I ended up getting my hands on like a German DVD of it, and, and now I have it on Blu-ray. And Yeah, it's a really nice, the picture on the Blu-ray, it's just... Oh, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I hadn't, I hadn't seen this film until last couple of years i had made a database of all the karloff and lugosi films existant and have been trying to work my way through and find the the handful from the talkie era that i haven't seen of both these guys and this was one of the films that i i came across and it's generally not a very well regarded film so it hadn't been kind of high on my list to to seek out and watch you know it's like the ones that he did that were um done in mexico or the philippines right at the end of his life and this is lumped in with that group so when I got it on DVD, and I don't even remember if I got it on a double feature or how good the print is, but when I watched it, I was like, hey, why do people not like this film? <laughs> this is a good film. And and Boris is terrific in it, and, and Christopher Lee is terrific in it, and Barbara Steele is in it. Why don't people know this film more? Why aren't they say, saying, well, this is one of Boris's last really good films? And having watched it now in glorious HD on my Blu-ray player, you know, it was a little expensive to get, but I'm very glad that I did get it because watching it this way, it's probably better than new again, since it's, you know, a beautiful, beautiful restoration and, and it's, it's wonderful. And it's a Tygon film, you know, I was going to mention that. Yeah. So when you talk about horror from classic horror from the UK, first of all, obviously you think of hammer, right. then you think of Amicus, 
And then Tygon is kind of like, you know, the number three in there. And Tygon is responsible for one of my absolute favorite Vincent Price films. Which one? Witchfinder General. Oh, yeah, right. You will each be tied in a prescribed fashion and cast into the moat. Only from the pen of Edgar Allan Poe could come such an horrendous tale of terror. The Conqueror Worm, starring Vincent Price in the most diabolic role of his career. Look for the devil's marks upon him. Get on with your task. The distorted genius of Poe creates poetic beauty from pain and uses idyllic love as a tool of torture. Men sometimes have strange motives for the things they do. I know. You've got an accusation to make. I'll get your confession for you. I'm husband to Sarah Lowe's. He's a man who's out to kill both of us. Then it appears to me that we should take steps to see to his death first. children at home and if you're squeamish stay home with them I shall kill you please leave the children at home and that is maybe quite possibly Vincent's finest performance of all time. It's oh, legendarily yeah. he and the director fought tooth and nail over it at the time. But then in retrospect, Vincent was like, Oh, maybe this was, <laughs> maybe right. he was right about this. It's a harrowing film to watch. It's really, really tough to take in a lot of ways. It's, it's, it's really tough. It's, and, and price is not a good guy in this i mean this so at this point in price's career boy we're talking about another move now at this point in price's career he's kind of got this he's evil but he's still kind of fun and kind of you know whatever right. you get to rich finder general and he's just he's just no, evil he's right. terrible terrible and anyway, anyway that's that's, that's, that's Tygon. Tygon. right yeah and they have you know a number of other pretty good horror films and stuff and they're Again, they're the, the kind of the third tier, and I always thought, you know, no offense to Amicus, that they're kind of a step down from Hammer, and then Tygon's a step down from them. And Tygon, really, they didn't do that many pictures, I don't think. They only had like 12, 13, maybe 14 movies that they produced. Yeah. Yeah, it's somewhere between a dozen and 20, and that's, yeah. that's just not that many, but there's a, it's a pretty good list. You know, they've got, got some pretty... Yeah, which friend in general? We got this one. Uh, there's a movie called a Horror House from '69, starring Frankie Avalon, <laughs> that I actually really enjoy. I had oh, that that's here. not a bad film. Yeah, no, no I, I, I really dig it. That. Uh, and Blood on Satan's Claw, which is that's just a great beautiful, film. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, that's, to look a, at. that's a very creepy film that yeah. really creeped me out when I was younger, and and still does. That's a good one. And the um, oh, what's the one with Peter Cushing with the the monster that comes back to life in the rain? Uh, is it the Blood Beast Terror? No, that's the one with the giant moth woman. And that's actually pretty okay. good, too. Though the end is uh, suffers a little from... Have you seen it? The end suffers from uh, maybe not not as big a budget as we really could have used. But it 
It's yeah. kind of that's kind of a cool one. It's the the creeping flesh. That's what I'm thinking of. You know, I mean, they're not major classics, but some of them are minor classics, and they're they're worth seeing. And it, and this one, Curse of the Crimson Altar, by whatever name it happens to show up, is a good one. It is. It is. And it was shown at Lovecraft, the Lovecraft Film Festival, because it's supposedly <laughs> based <laughs> on the Lovecraft story, Dreams in, uh, in the, in witch, the house. witch House. Right, yeah. Okay. Um, I know I talk about Lovecraft a lot here on the show, and I, I know that you dig his work, too. But Oh, you're not kidding. <laughs> Dreams in the Witch House. Okay, so Lovecraft is <laughs> of his time, obviously, and right. he's notorious for not having a lot of female characters in any of his stuff. I mean, there's like one or two, and typically when they do show up, they're villains. And uh, this is one of those stories where there is a witch referenced, and she's, well, a witch, Lavinia, and we got Barbara Steele playing her in the film version? I mean, come right. on. That's inspired casting right there. Barbara Steele. Yeah, no, brilliant. And Dreams of the Witch House is one of my favorite Lovecraft stories and one of the creepiest Lovecraft stories. I mean, it is. The, those of you who've been listening for a while maybe know that I grew up in New England. And at the time I was reading Lovecraft, the house I was living in was a pre revolutionary war house and just a stone's throw from New Bedford and Providence, which are obviously Lovecraft's kind of stomping grounds and stuff. So reading. Lovecraft in this old uh, semi-haunted house <laughs> late at night. It was just an amazing, bone-chilling experience. And uh, Dreams in the Witch House, I always think about that house and, and reading that kind of in the my bedroom under the eaves <laughs> in that house. Yep. And, yep. Uh, you know, but it's hard to see a lot of Lovecraft in this, aside from obviously, you know, kind of taking the, the idea of a man being transported uh, in, into a kind of a, a dangerous dream world by a witch, although with Lovecraft it, it had much more science-y kind of quantum physics ideas in it. And, and more stuff. clothing. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Not, not yeah. that Barbara Steele does nudity or anything like that, but when you do get to the, the dreaming section, uh, uh, there are some... Well, did you listen to the commentary at all? I actually listened to the entire thing. Okay, so film historian David Delvell refers to one of the costumes one of the men is wearing as a leather speedo, right? Um, <laughs> which is not something Lovecraft would have written. No, at all. No, there's <laughs> quite a bit of nudity in, in the the dreamlike sequences. Well, um, it's I mean, not, it's not it's not full nudity. It's kind of partial nudity. So there's a woman with kind of pasties on her breasts whipping people and there's right. the guy in the leather jock strap kind of character and there's some, you know, semi-naked women around and that kind of stuff. It's not really full nudity. There's a little more nudity in in the regular part of the film. It's not this is not a film filled with nudity, but it's 1968 and in between about 1967 and uh the beginning of the 1980s, everyone took their clothes off and filmed. There wasn't really any need for it, but there was not really any reason not to either. Especially in the UK when it came to genre pictures. Right. Especially, the, I mean, because th this film is referred to as like a psychedelic satanic film. I mean, there's that, that psychedelia, that, that hippie free right. love vibe is is all the way through this thing. Right. And, and you do get that. I, you know, yeah, it well, is what it know, is. And I, I grew up during the, you know. I came of age during the 70s, and people taking their clothes off was just not a big deal. You know, it's it's funny now that we have the internet where you can find every variety of nudity and whatever that you want instantly that people seem much more hung up about this kind of stuff. But 
at this time, you know, 1968, 1970, 72, 74, 76, no one cared. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, right. of course there's going to be nudity in it, and it's probably not even going to get an R rating for it. Yeah, yeah. True. I'd be surprised if this was rated more than, uh, well, it came out maybe before they had GP. So I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure if this uh, what this was rated. I suppose IMDb might tell us, but it's not. It's just, certainly wouldn't be a hard R in the no, in, not at all in the U.S. by any means. So anyway, we kind of got distracted by the nudity for a moment. Even the gore. There's not really a lot of gore. No. I mean, there's some blood, but it's not right. Not much. It seems kind of restrained actually when you compare this to films being made by Tygon's contemporaries. Yeah. There's not a lot of blood in this. I mean, there's some, and you know, it's kind of violent, and some terrible things happen, but it's not right. over the top, tripping it's blood not, here it's and there. Not I mean, an ex- it's you know? not made as an exploitation film. No, it's not. I mean, if nothing else, they're trying to exploit Boris Karloff's name in the film. And, and I wonder if maybe this is part of the reason why this movie gets a cool reception, is that this was the last film that Karloff filmed that was released during his lifetime. Uh, this is the last film that he filmed in the UK. He was incredibly sick during the production. Right. The crew expected him to die halfway through. He just was not in the best of health. Right, yeah, and then they stuck him out in the middle of the cold to shoot right. a lot of these night scenes, and you can see the breath coming out of this his mouth and he's in a wheelchair and he looks pretty frail but having said all that Karloff kills it here <laughs> oh he, he certainly does I mean when you're watching the film if you listen to the commentary with Delvell and he's interviewing Barbara Steele during the time almost every time Karloff comes on Steele will stop talking and she's just like look at that man's face right and, and there's just this reverence to what, not just because he's Karloff, but because he's Karloff the king. He is acting. He is such right. a, a professional. And, right. Yeah, and people I, I can't help but watch him in this He's film. on the screen. He steals the scene from everyone. And he's not even trying. He's just that good. He is just that good. My favorite part about this film with his performance, I mean, he does some pretty cool things. I mean, I, I love the whole, I, I like collecting instruments of torture. You know, I love that. <laughs> but my favorite part, my favorite bit of his performance is every time that <laughs> Robert Manning just downs the drink, downs the brandy that he's right. offered. And it's just this vintage brandy that Karloff and Lee are sipping reverently. And, and Manning, played by Mark Eden, is just like, oh, that's nice, and just downs it. And it happens like three times. Right. Every time he does it, Karloff gives him a look like, you uneducated right. fool. Just, Don't you understand? Just this is a little <laughs> – mild look of contempt it's kind of and that's it that's it and every single time it's awesome oh man he's just great you know when i talked to sarah karloff about you know her father briefly a few years ago i mentioned this film and you know she didn't have a lot of positive things to say again because you know he was sick and, right you know they really did kind of run him ragged and i i i wonder if maybe some of that has kind of bled into people's perception to right. this film that they didn't treat karloff well so you know but I think he does an amazing no, job. No, he's terrific in it. And actually, you know, all of the, the major horror stars are, are really good in it. And you can debate whether Mark Eden and Virginia Weatherall, whether they're, you know, really good in it. But they're serviceable in it. There's certainly nothing to complain about two fairly good-looking young people in a movie be playing two fairly good-looking young people in a movie, you know, and it, right. it felt absurd to me because I did. I watched all the extras and I listened to the entire commentary. It seemed absurd to me that the commentator that was interviewing Barbara Steele, who's apparently someone you're more familiar with than I, that he spent a lot of time kind of harping on 
oh, here they are. They're paying attention to these people when what we really want to see is Christopher Lee and Boris Karloff. It's like, dude, get over it. <laughs> this is, the right. movie is what it is. You know, It's just the same way that you spend a lot of time complaining that there aren't that many scenes with Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee, and and why isn't there you know scenes with Boris Barbara and Christopher Lee and Michael Goff? What these are the people that we're interested in. Why didn't the filmmakers know that he spends, I thought, an inordinate amount of time complaining about that during his commentary, and far too little time actually talking about the production of the movie and the other kind of things that I listen to commentary for. So I have to say. Well, I love the movie, but I can't recommend that people spend a lot of time listening to the commentary unless you like hearing Barbara Steele chime in every once in a while. Right. That That's the thing. The commentary with Barbara Steele, the, the way she responds to his questions, I love listening to that. And and honestly, this commentary could have been uh, just an interview between him and Barbara Steele right. and have nothing to do with the film and be just as engaging. I mean, she says some pretty awesome things. I wish they'd gotten a different commentary with someone that actually liked the film. You and I have talked about this. There's no reason to have a podcast with a person uh, talking about a film that they don't like. There's just no reason to do it as far as I can, as far as I can tell, because I'm not going to tune into a podcast about why you hate the Crimson Cult unless you know, you're known for comedy and it's going to be really hilarious. But even then, I don't I don't listen to those kind of podcasts. I don't watch that kind of stuff on YouTube. There's enough snark and, and derision in the world without adding to it. So I was really disappointed in the commentary that it spent so much time talking about the, the shortcomings of the production. And, you know, yeah, there's a lot of Karloff love and, and some Lee love in there too. But talking about what it isn't for the entire thing, well, I, I haven't been that disappointed in a commentary since the um, the one from the the Willis O'Brien the Giant Behemoth commentary. Oh, really? It's wow. just a terrible commentary um, wow. by brilliant people. And these, you know, obviously I love Barbara Steele, and this other guy has good creds. But the commentary didn't add anything to my understanding or enjoyment of the picture uh, that I didn't actually get from the the short subject that they had. Right, people that actually made the picture. And, you know, it's like, okay, why didn't we get a commentary that delved a little deeper, that even just talked about the story and stuff? You're a guy that digs deep into the backgrounds of these things and finds all the little the trivia and stuff, whereas generally when you and I talk, I talk about the stories and the characters and the things that the uh-huh. people have done before and that kind of stuff. And those are both valid ways to to do things, but sitting in a in an audience and, and doing a commentary where you're talking about, well, I wish we'd had more Christopher Lee here, or I wish we'd had more Boris Karloff, or isn't it terrible that – that's pointless as far as I'm concerned. I think Barbara Steele was maybe even aware of that during the commentary yes. because at one point David Duvall starts talking about Mark Eden being kind of wasted in the film and just – I don't know if he flat out says he's not very good. But he doesn't have a lot of overly positive things to say. And Steele actually says he does just fine. He's great. He just doesn't have the right things to do and and kind of blames it on the script and the screenwriting. And and maybe that's the issue here because I don't have a problem with Mark Eden as the lead. And I don't even have a problem with the script because there's certainly enough going on in this film. There is. And, you know, if if you had put a younger Peter Cushing in that role – 
Oh, wow. I don't think that you would have, because it's the kind of role that he played early. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking for my brother. He's missing. He's he's gone to this haunted house to collect antiques. And I think it would work just fine. And I don't think it doesn't work with, you know, with Mark Eden and Virginia Wetherill. I think they're fine. There's, Mm -hmm. it's. This is what. What else did you expect? You're not going to always get the young Marlon Brando going to the haunted house. It just doesn't happen, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, at this point in their careers, too, you know, if you want to go see a Boris Karloff film and and you want to see it in 1968, it's a brand new movie on the big screen, and you're a Karloff fan, you know, he's not going to be you know, he's, he's, up and running, he's an you know? Man, right. Yeah. He's an older guy, and, and it's unfortunate. And Lee, I can see maybe you can get a little bit more out of him, but... Right. But he yeah, was I fine, think he, too, though. Oh, he's great. I mean, he even... <laughs> he Supposedly, he took the movie only because he wanted to hang out with Boris Karloff. And, which, and hey, reason. more power to you, man. Yeah, no, more I'd absolutely do that. You know, there, there's definitely things I've done in my career that are just to do this because I want to do this particular thing, not because any of the other circumstances. You pretty much described every time you come on monster kid radio, it's just (laughs) to hang out with me basically. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, it could be. (laughs) But, but all the, you know, the, the trappings of it, the basic story, the story of the man's whose brother has fallen into, into some kind of trouble with this cult. And then he goes and, looks for the guy and he gets wrapped up with a girl who's the, the niece of the guy uh, who owns the house where they're all, where he's staying and he's investigating and trying to find out what happens to his brother. And eventually he starts having these terrible dreams about this cult. And there's this witch that was burned in the town. And so it all revolves around how is he being sucked into this cult? Who is sucking him into this cult is what he's going through. Is it real or is it a dream or is it psychedelia? All of those trappings, that whole plotline, there's nothing wrong with that. And even the mod trappings of the 60s, you know, where we've got kind of a little pseudo-orgy going on at one point, and there are a lot of kids dancing, and there's miniskirts, which uh, in one of her interviews, Virginia Weatherall complains about the miniskirts. She looks great in a miniskirt. I don't know what she was worried about or what she was complaining about, but all of that, that's all par for the course. There's nothing there to complain about. You know, the only thing that I could ever complain about in Tygon Productions that I could think of of the the ones we've talked about is that sometimes their budget shortcomings are a little obvious. Mostly that's not a problem in this picture, although the you know, I don't know if we're going to get to the final scene. I, in the final scene, I think they could have spent a little more time and and framed that up a little better and made it a little more spectacular but that's the problem i had with blood beast terror too it was like you know we got to this scene and it's all been pretty good and then we get to the final scene and it's like oh we ran out of money and we're not going to get that extra shot for you <laughs> yeah and, and that seems to be a complaint about this film too is that once you get to the end none of nothing's answered there's too many questions still left unanswered and right i'm okay with that right i think that was by design i don't think that was by budget i think that was intentional right i think they could have set it up better like you said right. yeah you know to leave this open ending i mean the, the final shot with lee and steel is it's really good it gives you like a huh really and then right yeah. it would have been better if they'd staged it better and if they right. lingered on it a little longer right. and if they'd if they'd had 
Ray Harryhausen doing the special effect there so that the match was better and that kind of stuff. You know, we don't don't want to get how I don't know how spoilery we want to get. Again, this is, you know, this movie is more than 40 years old at this point. It's 45, 40 whatever it is, almost 50 years old. But that's my impression with Tygon is that they kind of just come a little bit short on some of the special effects, often near the end of the film. It's almost like they're shooting them chronologically and then kind of run out of money yeah. there at the end. But there are, you know, as you, and as you said, there are unanswered questions. It's like, what exactly was going on? Was this all under the control of this guy? And not to get too spoilery, but did we ever really find out what happens to the brother? I don't think so. It's implied what happens to the brother. We're kind of told what happens to him, but we never actually... You know, movies are a visual medium, so you're always telling people, just show me, don't tell me. Show me, don't tell me. And so there's, it falls a little short in that. But it's still a fine film, and the production values are good. And they shot it at um, Gilbert's house, I guess, from Gilbert and Sullivan, right? <laughs> yeah. His estate. And it looks beautiful. Oh, it's great. You know, the house is great. It's perfect for this kind of stuff. So... Honestly, I don't know what people are complaining about. <laughs> it's still, I mean, even though it's 68, it's still kind of got this semi-gothic kind of feel. And this is something that I picked up from the commentary. You know, he talks about how it's still got a semi-gothic kind of film. And, and right. it does, even though you've got all the psychedelia and the, the hippie party happening inside, you know, the, the building is gorgeous. And then once you get inside it kind of and you get past the, the party, it's kind of like this old dark house kind of story, which, again – Right. I mean, 68, and they're still doing it. It's great. And you mentioned the psychedelia. I think they even make that work for the creepy vibe because, I mean, one of my favorite shots in this thing is Michael Goff standing next to the thing with all the with that lamp with the, the colored shade spinning. The glittering yeah. lamp. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, that's not – Hypnotism and psychedelia and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and Goff just standing there staring. Blankly. Right. I mean, it is. And talking to someone you can't see. It is right. creepy and unnerving, and it works. I mean, Michael Goff, we haven't mentioned yet, but Michael Goff did a whole bunch of these movies over in the UK now. Right. Michael Goff from Conga and Alfred from, from the later Batman. Horrors of the Black Museum. Right. Uh, you know, just a horror of Dracula. I mean, he, he is somebody who I think I don't talk enough about when it comes to his horror cred because he did so much. Yeah, he did. He did quite a few, and often he's he goes very large in his roles. But that's what the roles call for. So you're not, you know, you can't blame him for being over the top in Conga or something like that. No, not at all. It, it works just fine in Conga. Don't don't worry about it. Don't don't fret that he's being large. That's that's what they asked him to do, and he's doing fine at it. He did, and I, I like him in this quite a bit. I mean, he's a little on the creepy, crazy side, but still right. pretty good. Yeah, pretty he good. could, you know, if we are going to complain about that kind of stuff, he could be in the movie more, you know, and, and in some sense, yeah, the stars could, he and Boris Karloff and Barbara Steele and, and Christopher Lee, they could all be in the movie more. But given the, the kind of budgets that Tygon worked with, which we, again is, you know, they're the third rate hammer. We're lucky that they had these people at all and that they got really good performances from all of them. Yes. You know, and they did. Boris, Christopher Lee, Barbara Steele, Michael Goff, they were they all bring it. You know, and even the pretty much everyone is doing a good job in this film. You know, uh even down to oh, who's the guy that they had as the special guest star who was the vicar 
who's who was also I think a uh, vicar in a, a couple of Dracula films. Do you remember that? Uh, guy? Rupert Davies. Rupert Davies. You know, he came in for a day, and he he's great. <laughs> he's mm-hmm. he does good work, and even the younger people, you know, even even uh, Mark Mark Eden and Virginia Wetherill, they're fine. Yep. Is he, is Mark Eden the best looking young guy in the world? No. Is he Frankie Avalon handsome? Probably not. But I've seen their Frankie Avalon film, and I I kind of like Mark Eden better. In the, in the yeah, me too. The me young too. heroic <laughs> ingenue. Nothing against Frankie because you know he he did a lot of fun work. But well, he's an antique stealer, and he comes across as an antique stealer. Right. I mean that he plays the role just fine, and it's 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 it just blows my mind that so many people either either aren't aware of this film or they downplay the film. I think there's a lot to really dig. You know, I remember reading about this over the over the course of years from you know when i first discovered famous monsters and probably you know somewhere right around this time or a little earlier right right up through the present that just you know and then boris did these five really terrible films at the end of his life well no (laughs) boris did four really marginal mexican films and then this one yeah which is a good film yeah which stands up well next to the other Tygon pictures and may actually, you know, I'd have to look at their list. It may even be my favorite Tygon picture. I mean, discounting au pair girls for, you know, just gratuitous nudity. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. What? Wow. Au pair girls. (laughs) Wow. So I got to ask, which Blu-ray did you watch? Was it the Kino release or the release from the UK? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Well, they both have the same commentary track, but what was the music like? The music? Oh, God. I'm, I'm not even sure, Derek. I got the one that will play on US Blu-ray players. Okay. I don't think it had a big Kino logo on it, so okay. that's why I'm Well, the I'm Kino release was called sure. The Crimson Altar. Um, and, and the- oh, no. This is this – is, uh, you you mean the Crimson Cult or that's Curse what I meant? That's what I meant. Yeah, no, the 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 Crimson Cult is the Kino release. Ah, well, that's why I didn't get the Kino release. <laughs> okay, no, and there, there's a big difference here, and I've mentioned it in passing here on the show before. When it was released here in the states, it had a new soundtrack. Oh, the music is completely different now. If you go and you listen to the, and I've mentioned this too, and I just find this endlessly amusing. Peter Knight's responsible for the score work in Curse of the Crimson Altar, but a lot of the score is actually library music. And, oh, yeah, you mentioned that. <laughs> you know, listeners who don't know, a lot of times, especially with lower budget productions, you don't normally, you, you can't go out and have an original score composed. You right. buy some library music that you buy the rights to, and you figure out a way to make that work. Night of the Living Dead did this. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's all nothing Christopher but Christopher Mim pieces. does it with his films. Right. Well, some of the library music that appears in Curse of the Crimson Altar is also from the same library of music that Monty Python used in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So there's one bit of music in this film that you can also hear in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and I find that just endlessly amusing. Oh, I didn't, I didn't even notice it. <laughs> it's just it's subtle. Notice. But when it got released here in the States, a completely new soundtrack was given to the film. And, oh, man, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. And this is the Kino version, this is, is that right? Yeah, this is on the Kino release. Which is called The Crimson Cult? 
Yeah, and the yeah. composer mm. on that, Kendall Schmidt is the composer on that. And there is a small yeah. featurette about Kendall Schmidt and what he did and how he was brought in to do music for different things and things along those lines. And if you watch the film with his score, I think of all the different kind of genre films that I enjoy watching, this movie is the one that can serve as the best example as how music can impact a film. Really? Because if you, if you watch the American release with the Kendall Schmidt score, this movie suddenly feels like it might have come out in the 80s. Oh. And it feels like a full moon picture. Oh, well, thank God I don't have that version then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nothing else is different the, I mean, uh, other than the title card. Music but of the 1980s mus- motion pictures and genre motion pictures and horror motion pictures is a good reason never to watch movies from the 1980s in the genre as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> most of the music, John Carpenter aside, most of the music from 80s horror films is just wretched. I'm going to I'm gonna dive into my, uh, my previous life uh, as a genre fan because you know, for a while there, I was all about the modern stuff. And, and, and while I don't really care so much about it anymore, at one point, I was obsessed with a movie from 1986 called Neon Maniacs that I, <laughs> I, I, I first saw on uh, USA Up All Night or one of those. It was before Rhonda Shear took okay. over, so it was actually a serious presentation. And, and I just became obsessed with it. I mean, there's a young girl who wants to be a filmmaker when she grows up fighting monsters. I mean, come on. Oh, that sounds cool. I've never heard of it. Well, it's it's a it's a very low budget slasher film in the end, okay. right? And and I've watched it recently on Blu-ray, and it, it doesn't hold up. But the music is by Kendall Schmidt, and I got obsessed with this film. At the end of the movie, soundtrack available on blah 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 records, and it's become this thing for me. Even though I'm not a big fan of the film, you know, the film doesn't do much for me anymore. I still got so obsessed with it, I would still kill for that soundtrack <laughs> just so I can say, you know what, that one thing that I wanted growing up, I now have it. Now, has it ever been really released i don't know this movie from what i understand didn't do very well so plans of releasing a soundtrack probably didn't go through but man you know i mean I, i've had this obsession with kendall schmidt for years so it was cool to watch this Kendall's film with guy, his music right or is it yeah not yeah a, not a lady kendall there are some no, it's, My it, son it's is a guy kendall, and <laughs> there i have seen women named kendall too occasionally so yeah. and did he do this at the time of the release in the U.S. or was it done later? I don't think so. I think it was part of a VHS release. That, think, that would be my guess. And, you know, he did the same thing for Journey to the Seventh Planet, Witchfinder General. He, he was brought in to do some of this. He did some of the music on the VHS release of Madhouse. Okay. So he was brought in to do some of this kind of stuff. Yeah, I just watched Madhouse this week, actually. when I And I'd seen it before, but not for ages and ages. So it was almost, it was like watching a new movie again. Great film. Yeah, no, it's it's really, really good really enjoyed it a lot. It was, this was, you know, I actually, that was the last thing I watched at the end of May and the Curse of the Crimson Altar was the first thing I watched in June. So I feel like I really, I got my masters of horror in and, and had a great time with all of them. Hey, there you go. There you go. I mean, if nothing else, you get to see Lee and Karloff together. Right. I mean, it's not the only time you see him in the same film, but I think it's the one film where they have the most scenes together and they right. interact the most. Right. Yeah, and and that was another thing they complained about on the commentary that I was like, well, what are you talking about? Lee and Karloff are together in the same scene quite a bit. <laughs> you know, yeah, the and, only person who doesn't have scenes with everybody is Steel, right? Because she's the the witch queen in a, in another dream time or or something, which is fine. And and we should mention her costume and her makeup is just fabulous in this. And she loves it. She thought the headdress was amazing, which. Kind of goes against everything I thought I had heard about Barbara Steele not enjoying this film, but apparently she did. Right. 
Uh, she she liked the headset. I think the costume's pretty darn cool. I think it's awesome. You know, I think it's also the only way it could be more awesome if if she was wearing even less. But that's a very uh, hetero male thing to say. <laughs> Go back to the all pair girls for that, Steve. <laughs> and you know, and I've got a, a a list of her movies to try to make sure that I see them all. So she's fabulous, and and she looks great, and the costume is great. It's wonderful. The production values are very very good on this, despite the fact that it's it really is a low budget film. They do do quite a lot with what they were able to have i think so too and it's again it's it's also a a capsule of the time where you get to see the cars and you get to see the people and you get to see you know the mod 60s that famously parodied in austin powers and that kind of stuff and all that you know i was a little kid when when this was going on but all that was real the movies didn't make this stuff up people really were kind of living like that through the late 60s and into the 70s they're there was kind of this mod swing and lifestyle going on. And it's really interesting to watch films that were made in that era and capture that moment in time, whether in Eng- England or, or in the United States, and look back and say, oh, that's really interesting. It was kind of a, in some ways, a freer time than we live now. Yeah. But also, you know, I mean, we weren't about to turn the planet into a deadly hothouse then either, <laughs> though we were living under constant threat of nuclear annihilation. True. Yeah, so. yeah, you know. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I think if you look at these movies, and I've said this over and over again, it's kind of become an old hat, and I don't remember where I heard this from, but if you watch these older movies, one of the draws for me, yeah, I love the stories. I love watching the performances and the, and the characters and the monsters and the music and all that, but you can watch them on a different level and just kind of see what's happening behind the main action, and suddenly it's kind of a documentary. And you right. can see what life was like in a different culture, in a different place, at a different time. And I love that so much. And, right. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that Vince Rotolo really liked yeah. a lot, too. And yeah. he used to talk about a lot of the B-movie cast was the, the fact that these are time capsule of their era. And, you know, and if you're old enough, like, like Vince was and like I am, you actually remember the, the era as well as having, you know, from when you were a young kid, as well as having the overlay of the film. And it's like, so it, you say, yeah, this was real. This was, this was really happening. And then people that are a little younger, like you get to see a glimpse into the times before you were that born. That's fascinating. Which is so fascinating. It is. It is. It's, it's like the same way the, the movies from the forties and, and thirties and stuff have a little extra fascination for me because it's like, did they really do that then? <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, when I'm writing something like uh, Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors, which is set in right around 1930, I always have to go back and, and check. And people are constantly saying, did they really have x-rays in 1930? And I'm like, yes, they really had x-rays in 1930. <laughs> you know, there's always yeah. that, well, what do, what what's more contemporary than we think it is and what, what actually dates back to the time period. And it's always kind of fascinating to find out a lot of things that people think, you know, were invented yesterday or during their lifetimes actually stretch back much further in time. And movies, movies really show us mm-hmm. that really, really well, mm-hmm. even if they're not always quote unquote, historically accurate, uh, even to when they were made, you know, they're definitely a, a snapshot of 
certain things and other things that they're they're probably fudging. You know, like you never see a, a toilet in any film before, like 1960. Right, right. So. <laughs> Not until you know, Hitchcock came along. I um, right, yeah. That's been my my biggest hang up with my own personal writing. Actually, is I, I'm I'm working on a weird western. I've mentioned that a few times, and I'm terrified I'm going to get the technology or the world wrong. You know, I have a 50s monster right. movie that I want to, or monster movie, monster movie style story that I want to write, but I'm terrified I'm going to get the details wrong. So I end up watching all these older movies and think, okay, this is what they did here. This is what they did there. And I know it's a movie, so some of it's not going to be real. But, you know, I, I watch right. these movies and I get a sense or a vibe for some of that. And it's just – I love it. You know, you mentioned Vince Rotolo. Just as an aside, listeners, we're actually recording this on June 3rd, which is uh, the weekend of Wonderfest which is way that where they are uh, awarding the Rondo awards. And my understanding is that Mary Rotolo was going to actually go herself to accept the award for having Vince Rotolo inducted into the monster kid hall of fame. Awesome. And, and I just bring that up because listeners, I want to thank each and every one of you who helped make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. I know that you and I and, and Rich Chamberlain and a number, number of other people were really pushing folks to go and turn out and to vote for Vince and, B-MovieCast fans and everyone that ever listened to his show and voted, thank you so, so much. I know this means the world to Mary. It really does. It means the world to Mary and means the world to us because without Vin- – you know, I said it back then and I think you've written it repeatedly in, in your various tributes. Without Vince, there'd be no Monster Kid Radio. Right. Yeah, and you yeah. and I never would have met Derek without Vince. Right. Without, so. without Vince, without the B-MovieCast and what he did, you know. So yeah. Vince Rotolo, wherever you are, man, thank you. We love you. We miss you. And uh, hope we'll see you someday, but not too soon. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> right. No offense. No. Yeah, that one, that's great. That's a, a nice thing to know that, that's happening this weekend. Yeah. Cool. So, th- thanks. Thanks, everybody. Anyway, but my recommendation anyway. is you see, seek out this film. And uh, having just heard what Derek said about the soundtracks, I'd say you should seek out the Curse of the Crimson Altar version of the film. Yeah. And enjoy the library music, which uh, may be superior to the 1980s re- music redub, which who knows? There were a lot of weird rights things that happened in the 80s with the release of VHSs. So there were a lot of. That's exactly you know, what it was. That's exactly what it was. It's a, Odeon Entertainment is the company that put out the release in the UK. And my understanding is that it is all region. So you can watch it in the States without worrying about having. Uh, a multi-region Blu-ray player. And that must be the one I have. Yeah. Because it, it's marked as if it had a, a – it's got like a UK rating on the front of it rather yeah. than US rating. And it does play just – I was worried about that two days ago <laughs> when it hadn't yet arrived. And I'm like, I need to watch a really good version of this before <laughs> I talk to Derek. And it got here and I was like, oh, God, please actually – be correct and please play in my player and it did no problem (laughs) if if it's got barbara Steele on the well i guess she's on both anyway uh the only difference between the blu-rays is uh the interview with kendall schmidt himself on the kino release but the commentary is the same the conversation with christopher lee is the same um and actually i take this back the little making of is actually only on the odeon release so and that's actually worth having um it is it's very good they interview mark eden they talk to victoria weatherall right yeah, and they talked to some other people involved in the film, and it's a, a good piece. And the Christopher Lee piece is actually not centered on the film, but it's a, a UK television retrospective of his uh, his career. Right. And he, he's terrific in it. It's it's a lot of fun. 
I liked both of those extras way, way more than I liked the commentary. So yeah. uh, not to jump on that too much, just know going in that it's this is a commentary, but he's someone that doesn't seem to like the film very much. Right. And somebody who <laughs> he seems to like hanging out with Barbara Steele and he's got a rapport with Barbara Steele and he brings some of that to the commentary, which is great. But honestly, as you said, I would have liked it better if it had just been an interview with her and not done as a commentary. Although it is, it's, it's there are some moments where it becomes kind of interesting when Christopher Lee shows up on a screen a couple of times. She just stops talking. She's like, "Why did I never notice how how handsome he was when right? we were doing this?" <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, oh, I'd forgotten that he was such a handsome and magnetic man and the other thing you get from the commentary and from the other pieces on the film is how much everyone loved boris karloff yes and how wonderful he was to work with and how genuinely nice he was to everyone and how he really went above and beyond to do his part and probably risking his health and maybe damaging his health during this film by just trooping on with everyone. The only other time I think I've heard so much praise about an actor is Peter Cushing. Everyone in the world seems to have liked Peter Cushing, and everyone in the world seems to have liked Boris Karloff. And boy, that's that's a high recommendation. You can't. You, know. you hear stories about, yeah, Bela was great in this, but then you might also hear about somebody having a negative experience. You know, the same with Christopher Lee or, or some of these others, but I have never heard anybody say right. anything negative or, or read anything negative about people who have worked with Karloff or Cushing. And I mean, that's right. that to me transcends every horror movie that they ever did, every genre film, every non-genre film they ever did. I mean, that right. they were genuinely nice people that were loved by their contemporaries. That's just amazing. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's wonderful to hear. And it's especially wonderful here in this film, which is basically right at the end of his life. Yep. Boris was doing good work right to the end of his life. You know, I, I love Lugosi too. And, and I'm very fond of both of them. And, and if you ask me to pick one or the other, I, it's really hard, but I would probably pick Boris because Boris, I think maintained a level of good work, even in, lower budget films right through the end of his life. Whereas Bela was, Bela was a little more up and down, up and down. But in his defense, he had, he had a lot different burdens to carry than Boris did. Yeah. Lugosi had the demons. Yeah. Um, some of know, they, some of his own making, but some not. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, certainly the studios treated him crappier for. Yeah. Not, unfortunately, you know, I mean, he worked like the devil to get into Dracula and took a cut rate to do it, and then they never treated him with respect after that. Yeah, and, it kind of haunted him for right. the rest of his days because, I mean, they smelled the desperation and, and kind of played off of that right, for, yeah, exactly. for the rest of so, his career. Oh, we don't have to pay this guy like he's an A-star because he's not, you know, he needs the money. He'll take what's, he'll take what's there. So anyway, but it's wonderful that Boris was able to do this. And despite the fact that I honestly – I just don't know why people lump this in with the with the Mexican films that were released. It's totally different. I mean, it, it's it's such a different thing. I mean, he was actually in the UK. He was in the UK making this movie with the Mexican films. He never went to Mexico. Right. He shot all of his stuff in LA. Right. And they just put it all together in the editing room. Right. And he's still good in all that stuff too, though. 
Sure he is. Sure he is. <laughs> but but I, is I think not- there's this romance about, you know, this Targets was his last great film. And, and, and while Targets is great and it's right. a moving and it's, it's a wonderful picture. Right. And I know it meant a lot to him and it means a lot to his daughter and it means a lot to his fans. I think there's this romance that that's it. That's, that's the cap. Right. And the rest of it's just like whatever. And it's like, I, I don't think that's fair to him or to the people who worked with him on these other movies. Right. Yeah. And it's a, it's a shame that the fact that Target is such a good movie has seemingly just swept this film into the dumpster with, along with films that he literally was doing day work in a completely different country. So this is not like that. This is a, this is a good yeah. and worthy film. And like I said, I hadn't seen it until just a year or two ago. And when I wa- finally watched it, I was like, why was I avoiding seeing this? Why, why were people cutting this down? This is a good film. This is a solid film. Is it the best written film ever? No. Is it the best produced film ever? No. Is it a low-budget film? It definitely is a low-budget film. But it's a good low-budget film. And it's well-produced. For heaven's sakes, it's a Christopher Lee Boris Karloff film. What more do you want? Oh, wait. Barbara Steele, really? What more do you want? <laughs> you know, you have the the king of all time horror. You have the king of the nineteen fifties and sixties horror. One of the great long running actors in all the time, and you have the queen of horror, who I think Barbara Steele has that title even above everyone else. You have those three people in a film together. What more, literally, do you want? Oh, you could throw in Vincent Price, I guess. But seriously, <laughs> <laughs> what more do you want than yeah. three of the top icons in horror in a film together, in a good film? So listeners, check it out. Don't let your biases or what you've heard about this movie influence you. If you have an opportunity to see it, especially the UK cut, I, I highly recommend this movie. Right. Uh, Barbara Steele is amazing in this film. Lee and Karloff, their scenes together are fantastic. Yeah. But then Lee and Mark Eden, those scenes together are great. And Boris Karloff outside, even though he's probably catching pneumonia – with Mark Eden. Right. He's great. I mean, even just Mark Eden and Virginia Rutherford, Michael Goff. I mean, there's so much to really enjoy about this movie. Right. Yeah. And then Virginia Weatherall is a beautiful young woman. She's just gorgeous. So even if they body doubled, apparently her, her nude scene from the back, but still it's like, it was funny hearing her talk about not wanting to do the nude scene from the back or, or a nude scene on the altar later and where she didn't, but then she's actually nude in other scenes. <laughs> it's like, wait, I, I, I don't get it. It's like, she talks about it and it's like, it wasn't in the script and I wasn't going to do it. But then she said, but on the other hand, looking back at it now, I don't know what the big deal was. <laughs> right. But she's anyway, she's a beautiful woman. He's a handsome strapping young British man. You know, there's something for every everybody here. You know, it is not going to be mile-a-minute Tom Cruise action pace to wrap it No, back but that's that. not why we watch these movies. Right. Right. It's It's got a, a nice kind of, I wouldn't say it's leisurely either, but it, it doesn't have a lot of just kind of aimless wandering around. It's like there there's physical movement from location to location to location. There's talks with the police and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's not just meandering, filling time. It all seems like it's going somewhere, even if it might not be going maybe as fast 
as mm-hmm. one might expect from a modern film. But I think actually fast motion and horror films are almost incompatible. Yeah, it's hard to do. Because one of the reasons, one of the ways you build suspense is through slow, not slow necessarily, but through kind of building motion. The creep factor builds and builds and builds. And if you're doing fast cuts, that just doesn't work as well, in my opinion. Yep. In my opinion. We didn't mention the director, uh, Vernon Sewell, who's the director right. on this. And he's got a filmography that includes some other genre films, Terror Ship, uh, The Ghosts of Berkeley Square, and Ghost Ship, starring Hazel Court. Right. And he was the director on that as well. So, I mean, he's got some genre in him, but he's also I mean, he's and a the working Blood director. Terror. No, that's right. Yeah, he did do that one, didn't he? Yep. Yeah, yep. so he's got other genre work, and this is mm-hmm. this is one of his last pieces too. Apparently, as a director, it is. Uh, if if I'm reading this correctly, he this was like his second to last feature film. Oh right, yeah, yeah, because yeah. the Birkin Hare one, which I think I've seen, but I wouldn't swear. From the seventies, right. this is not the one with with. Yeah, yeah, not the one with Simon Pegg. It's a different one, but I think I've seen it too. But I, I wouldn't swear. I haven't looked it up. But anyway, he's he's a a good a worthy director, right? Nothing wrong with this guy. Nope. You know, nothing wrong with any of this. It's all good work done on a limited budget by professionals. Yep. And it I shows agree. it shows what you can do with good people on a limited budget. Listener of the show and uh, relatively recent guest, depending on when this goes out, you'll have either just heard her on the show or you're going to hear her on the show. Uh, Dominique Lamsey's posted in the Facebook page or excuse me the Facebook group. You know, what is it about these movies that draws us to these low budget monster movies? Why, why do we love them so much? Especially if we aren't quote unquote traditional monster kids. And one of the things that she says is that, you know, these movies defied their budgets and expectations, even logic sometimes and made the movies anyway. Right. And that's why they're so lovable. And I think you see that in this. I mean, there are some issues with the budget, but man, they pulled it off anyway. Right. They just went, they just head down and just made their movie. It didn't matter. And that's one of the reasons we like the work of Christopher R. Mim and Joshua Kennedy too, is that these, these are people working on movies that they love, despite the fact that they don't have a lot of money to do it. And that means when someone like Christopher, someone like Josh, when they actually, do a really good movie with very little money. It's it's more extraordinary than the fact that, you know, the latest Marvel movie turned out pretty well. You know, the fact that Christopher Mim could make the giant spider, which I think is at least equal to, you know, the Bird Eye Gordon pictures with just a fraction of the budget, even in real dollars. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's it's amazing and it makes it that much more fun and that much more worth watching. The the fact that the giant spider is a better movie than Earth versus the Spider, in my opinion. You know, that's one of the things we love. That you can yep. you don't need money to do this and to do it well. And hopefully, you know, there are more people out there like like Christopher and like Joshua going to continue to make good movies. On a very low budget, because really what all you need is you need good actors and a good script. And even if the script is not the best, maybe in this particular film, it's not a bad script either. You know, it's a script that fulfills the, the needs of the film. And one of the things on the, the commentary was that it was mentioned that the script writer, whose name is eluding me right now, uh, apparently wrote some work for Dr. Who and the, 
and in the commentary that's kind of said somewhat derisively that maybe that explains the shortcomings of the script and i'm thinking no no man you've got that completely wrong that yeah, explains no, I got that too that explains why this guy the this screenwriter whether it's uh I don't know if it was Mervyn Hazeman or, or Henry Lincoln, or uh, or I guess there's one other that I'm not remembering. I'm not sure. This shows that this guy knew how to turn in a, a serviceable motion picture on a very limited budget, because that's what you had to do when you were writing Doctor Who. You had to cram as much interesting stuff into something as you could without raising the budget. And this film, I think, is an example of that. There's a lot of cool yep. stuff in this film. Agreed. A whole lot of cool stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, the, the comment is that this, there's a very, like, disjointed, episodic feel to the film, and, and to kind of attribute that to Doctor Who. Right, and I don't I don't get that at all, either. No, I, I, I don't either. It didn't seem disjointed to me at all. It's a very clear kind of through line. Now, it is the 1960s, so the guy gets distracted by the pretty girl, but <laughs> how many times but has that he, happened in real life? Yeah, that, and, and they're not the only Doctor Who connections to this. I mean, Mark Eden was in the TV movie An Adventure in Space and Time, which is about the early years of Doctor Who. Right. Uh, and I, th- I didn't. I think Weatherall might have even appeared in a Doctor Who at one point. I think um, she may have. Sure. That's outside of my my realm of knowledge, though. Yep. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not outside my realm of knowledge, but I didn't look it up, so I'm not going to. Yeah. You know, there are other people out there that are know all the Doctor Who stuff off the top of their head, and I've I've seen almost all of the serials. Uh, I, I only remember it because I think I mentioned it when I introduced it at the Lovecraft Film Festival. Well, there <laughs> a couple you go. Of years ago, <laughs> just trying to come up with something to talk about with the movie because I know that this film again has got that rep, and even when the movie was over, people were coming up to me saying, "Man, you really like this movie, huh?" Like they were surprised. It's like, yes. Did you just watch it? Because you should like it too. Right. <laughs> Because there's not a really a, aside from maybe needing a slightly longer ending. Yep. There's nothing to dislike about this film at all. Agreed. As, Agreed. as near as I can tell. I, and that's why I was when I first watched it, I was shocked. I thought I was, you know, I'd watch the other Mexican cheapies or a number of them, and I was preparing to get another one of those. And I sat down and I'm like, this feels like a Hammer film. Yes, it does. Well, it's a, a low budget Hammer film, but it feels like a Hammer film. And that's always a good thing. Always a good thing. If I say something feels like a Hammer film, that's a high compliment. So there you go. There you go. Go out, find this film. Find the don't get the one with the '80s music. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> does it does it have the real soundtrack as an alternate? No. No. Oh, what a pity. I'm glad I didn't actually end up with that one by mistake. Though. You know, because I had that whole Kendall Schmidt fascination, and I was like, "Oh, you know, I gotta, I gotta hear that. I gotta see what that's like." And you know, it is interesting to hear. And I, and I might be interested you know, in hearing it, but I don't want to, you know, pay top dollar. For I would, it. I wouldn't double dip. I wouldn't double right. dip. Yeah, especially okay. not. Is there? Are there any other cuts in the U.S. version? Is there anything that didn't? I don't think so, and um, I mean, I'd have to go back and double-check, but I don't think there's really a big difference other than the title card maybe being different. Right. You know, and I have an old German DVD of it, and I don't know if there's a different <laughs> cut of it on there. Yeah, it almost yeah, seems gotta, like there yeah. might have been a, a cut with more nudity for the continent yeah, somewhere. But there, yeah, There's just a little bit of nudity, though. Like I said, it's not – it's casual 1960s nudity. It's not – heavy exploitation film stuff so go see it seek it out curse of the crimson altar boris boris karloff's last really good film a good christopher lee film and barbara Steele painted kind of 
turquoise green in an right. amazing costume. Yep. What's not to love? And when you're, when you're done watching it, head over to CushingHorrors.com to read some more monster stuff. Yep, you can read it for free, or you can uh, send me a, a buck or, or two, and uh, if you send me two bucks, you actually get all the chapters in advance. CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com. Of course, there's a link in the show notes. And Steve, this episode, like I said, probably won't be going out for a little while. We might actually hear you on the show before this episode goes out when we announce the winners to the rallies. Ah. Because we're not going to wait a year. Awesome. <laughs> and we're not going to have computer death either. Oh, God, no. Screwing up our recording this next time. Knock wood. <laughs> but it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, Steve. And we'll it's always a pleasure to, to be here. Keep it going. And I, and I will say this because it did kind of get brought up at one point. If I ever do a Dark Shadows episode of any kind, of any course, kind. Steve, you're invited. You have to because I've seen – Every episode of the show, at least three times, I think. And yeah, I mean, you're not the only person who's invited, but you, you are on the list. Yeah, and and as I as I told you privately, if I'm not on that show, there will I may have to go on the bloody trail of vengeance. <laughs> well, on that veiled threat, let's end on that. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Doctor Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is Steve's current project and i believe he's done with it so back when we recorded back in june it was still in the works but now i believe it's done head over to cushinghorrors.com to check it out and you know what you can pledge now and get the entire thing all 26 27 chapters however much he's got it's all available to you right there. So go check it out and let them know that you heard about me here on Monster Kid Radio. Of course, Steve can also be found at sdsullivan.com. I'm going to make sure there's a link to the Cushing Horrors in the show notes on sdsullivan.com is in the permalink section of our website at monsterkidradio.net. So I mentioned the rallies with Steve. For those of you who don't know, the Monster Kid Radio Monster Rally Retro Awards, or sometimes called the Rallies, it's a way that we honor the best in genre cinema from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And we've done it now for three years in a row, celebrating the movies from 1931, 41, 51, 32, 42, 52, and then 33, 43, 53. And (laughs) so we're going to be doing it again. And Steve's kind of the perma guest host with that because it was his idea to actually do it in decades like that. Originally, I was just going to do it every single year, one year at a time. It's like, there's no way this show is going to go for 30 years like that, at least not in this current form, because podcasting is probably going to evolve. And well, not that I'm going to get tired of talking about this for the next 30 years. Anyway, Steve recommended we do it this way. And so he's our regular guest whenever we do that. Stay tuned to monsterkidradio.net or just keep listening because when it's time to announce the ballot, then you can cast your vote to let us know what you think the best actor, actress, monster, movie, or director of these genre films from 34, 44, and 54 are. Once again, thanks, Steve. But the room was quiet. Had it been a nightmare? What woke him? Was the candle in the antique mirror moving? Was there something standing by the curtains? Was he mad? Ah! The Crimson Cult, so terrifying they won't let us tell you about it here. And on the same bill, Horror House, a nightmare combination of shock and terror. See them together for the first time, but don't see them alone. Rated GP. Hello, everyone. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NashyCast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashy. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema 
filtered through our brains to you. Yes. Now, what is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain? And I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. <laughs> yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks Shem- like melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. Howl of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Horror Rises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. The man they are burying in a subterranean world of horror is a victim of the Oblong Box. Now, for the first time, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee star in Edgar Allan Poe's tale of the living dead, The Oblong Box. The Oblong Box in color from American International is rated M. Journey into double terror with the late night double feature. With X, the fiend from beyond space, and the wall people. A crew of interstellar explorers must fight an unstoppable alien fiend from beyond space, hell-bent on consuming them all. Will they survive? Can they survive? And on the same program, a man must fight to save his only child from the clutches of strange invaders who use their advanced technologies to steal sleeping children through their bedroom walls. Are your children safe? Two terrors to tear you apart in the late night double feature. All right, I want to cut in here and talk about Patreon. Patreon is a way for you to help support the creators that you love. And I've got a number of you who are patrons, courtesy of our Patreon page, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my Monster Kid heart. Now, a lot of the perks on the Patreon campaign are things like getting a shout-out on the show or getting mentioned in the special thanks section of our website. And honestly, that hasn't happened lately. And and it's not going to happen again this week either because I'm still kind of behind on everything. But starting next week, a renewed effort to make sure we keep on top of that. So... Again, thanks for everybody's patience. Appreciate everybody's support. If you are interested in checking out what we have to offer and what we're doing, head over to patreon.com slash monsterkidradio or just click on the word Patreon in the menu up there at the top of our website at monsterkidradio.com.
gentlemen, we are witnessing a biological chain reaction. A geometrical progression of deadly menace. It had started casually, insignificantly, as momentous events often do. Look there. Two points off the port bow. The giant behemoth, the fire-spitting monster predicted in the Bible. Its core a mass of lethal radiation. Rising from the depths of time, its strength enormous. Its gargantuan ferocity a threat to London, to the world itself. We must find a way of destroying this creature in one piece. Judging by the beast's size, I would say it was powerful enough to drive a battleship. Of course, its tremendous electric charge is what projects the radiation. That's what makes the creature so deadly. Well, have you any concrete suggestions? Yes. First, block off the Thames. Christopher, what insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? <laughs> People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but... There are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. <laughs> oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show? Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Do your eyes dare witness total terror. Frankenstein meets the space monster. For the first time on the screen, America's missile might mobilized against annihilating invaders from outer space. We have come here to this planet for one purpose only, to acquire breeding stuff to repopulate our planet. See the kidnapping of the Earth Maidens for the love-starved slaves of the sterile planet. Very good. We have done well, Nadia. I am pleased, Princess. You are satisfied. I will be satisfied when we have enough more like her to commence phase three. See the terrifying invasion of the beach party. See 
three, a United States astro-robot become a creature of death. For the first time, see Earth horror versus space terror. Frankenstein meets the space monster in Futurama. On January 1st, 1818, a novel called Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, was published. There was no author listed. It was published anonymously at first. Later, the world would find out that the book was written by Mary Shelley, and the book was published when she was just 20 years old. Um, when I was 20, I, I don't think I was anywhere near uh, <laughs> anywhere near writing a novel or doing anything like that at all. I think I was still trying to figure out my own stuff. Um, that was a couple of years after high school for me. Yeah, I, I was going to a community college. I thought I was going to make movies when I grew up, and I was kind of spinning my wheels in a video production class at the local community college. Writing a novel that would impact the world in such a way and continues to impact the world in such a way furthest thing from my mind. But this happened. And because this happened, because Mary Shelley did this, man, uh, the world of cinema, the world of horror, what we do here on Monster Kid Radio, what so many of you guys and gals do every single day, whether it's reading about monster movies, watching monster movies, whatever it is. This book has had this impact over 200 years, technically now, because this episode is going out on the 4th of January, 200 years in a couple of days, and this book is still having its impact felt around the world, and that's amazing. And because of that, I want to honor Frankenstein on Monster Kid Radio, starting this week briefly by just talking a little bit about the novel. Now, to be honest, I haven't read the novel in quite some time. I have read it more than once. And recently, for another completely unrelated project, I've been doing some studying and research about the novel, and, and specifically some of the characters and, and places that are mentioned. And again, like I said, for something completely related, but I fell in love with some of the language and the structure of the novel all over again. And I think at some point this year, I am going to reread the novel, make it a point to do so, as well as a few other things related to Frankenstein. And, and come back next week for more about that. Now, the novel itself... It's not like Dracula, whereas Dracula is an epistolary type novel. I probably mispronounced it, but the term basically means the novel, the story itself is made up of letters, uh, entries in a diary, uh, ship's logs, newspaper articles, things like that. It's fascinating. Frankenstein itself is, is not quite the same. Now, it does start with some letters. And one of the things that I found kind of cool when I first read this novel back in junior high school is that the first letter that opens up this whole thing before the chapters start, before we meet the bulk of the characters, the first letter in the novel was written on December 11th, which happens to be my birthday. I, I just thought that was kind of neat. Uh, so I was immediately drawn in. Uh, there's a handful of letters written by Captain Walton in the letter. He talks about having encountered Frankenstein himself. And then we get into the meat of the novel and you know, I, for a long time, had a hard time really enjoying novels written in the first-person perspective. It's just a, a 
thing with being a quirk, despite the fact that I love a lot of Lovecraft and he almost exclusively wrote first person. It, it kind of bugged me. That said, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is in first person with the exception of the letters. And it, it doesn't bother me. I, I like having the character of Frankenstein tell me his story through the novel. And I'm not going to break down the novel. This is not a book report. This is not a beat-by-beat breakdown of the original novel. I just wanted to say that I think it's something that if you haven't read, I highly recommend it. It is in the public domain. You can find it online in various places. Project Gutenberg has it. You can read it there. There are also many many audio versions of this. Some you can buy and some you can download for free through places like archive.org, the internet archives, you can find it there. In fact, the LibriVox recording of Frankenstein is a full cast production, which is kind of neat. Now, I don't know as much about Mary Shelley as I would like. I probably know a little bit more about Bram Stoker, but I do know that this 20-year-old changed the face of classic horror, modern horror, long before cinema was even a thing. I know that a friend of mine, uh, Brian Moore, who has sculpted busts of Bram Stoker, Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft, and so on, is currently working on a bust of Mary Shelley right now. And, you know, I wish him the best. I can't wait to see how it turns out, especially since there are very few images of Mary Shelley out there. I think there's a couple of paintings, and that's it. Whereas people like Stoker and Edgar Allan Poe and Lovecraft, there are photos that he can pull from. So he's kind of taking it to the next level with this current bus project. And actually, I would like to maybe even have him on the show to talk a little bit about it at some point. Next month, February, Women in Horror Month, I can't think of any woman who has impacted classic horror in such a strong, literate way, the way Mary Shelley has. So do yourself a favor. Go read the original Frankenstein novel, or at least listen to it as an audiobook. I think you'll enjoy it. And if you haven't read it, it's very different than anything Universal has ever done, or Hammer, or Roger Corman, or AIP, or any of them. It's very, very different. But it's very, very good. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about Frankenstein itself, how that story made its way to the screen. It didn't go directly there made a stop on the stage. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in episode 352 in our look at Frankenstein. Never such violent, vicious horror. Never such stark, nerve-shattering terror. And never a woman who loved like this. Her schizophrenic embraces making corpses of her lovers. Their bodies savagely scarred by her flesh-ripping claws. The vampire beast craves blood. There's nothing I can do. He's dead. All of her victims are men whom this psycho fiend has to have to satisfy her desperate, inhuman hunger for a love mate. That moon. Does it make you feel romantic? No man is immune to her irresistible lure. No man can survive her insatiable lust for blood. Because she's something more than mortal woman. She's the incarnation of evil. Ah! It was a horrible creature, sir. With huge eyes, sir. Oh, with wings. 
diabolical power that turns this beautiful woman into a giant death's head killer. Terrifying creature of murder and horror. The Vampire Beast Craves Blood. Starring Peter Cushing, Robert Fleming. Thunderbird International Pictures presents The Death Curse of Tartu. A legend black with evil and red with the blood of innocent youth. Photographed in the forbidding depths of the Florida Everglades, this is the incredible story of an archaeological excursion planned as an educational adventure and ending as a blood-spattered nightmare of incarnate hallucinations. Cold and slimy creatures without mercy hunt and kill, controlled by the soul of a rotting corpse. They danced over the grave of Tartu, who was restless in his coffin, and made passionate love on his burial mound until... They faced the terrible reality of the death curse of Tartu. Was it really a killer shark in the swamp waters, or was it... Tartu, who had sworn vengeance on all who disturbed his grave, stopping suspense of scenes that spare no detail of horror. See the bloody massacre of terrified youngsters as Tartu the Witch Doctor returns to wreak vengeance. See the death curse of Tartu coming soon to this theater. This is Vincent Price. I've been involved in many blood-chilling films like The House of Wax and The Fly. But never have I played in a more terrifying shocker than my new picture, The House on Haunted Hill. It's a story guaranteed to make you shudder with fright. See The House on Haunted Hill, if you dare. So that brings us to the end of episode 351 of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, thank you for listening and making me part of your podcast diet. I appreciate having the support and everybody sharing the tweets and retweeting the Facebook posts or the other way around. It's always fun to talk about classic monster movies and to talk about them with people like you. Well, makes it even better. So I want to thank you for checking out the show and supporting the show over the past 350 or so episodes. If you're a new listener, welcome aboard. Appreciate having you here. As well, please subscribe to the show through iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. And if you are an iTunes user, please consider giving us a review in the iTunes store, an honest review. Would really appreciate your support there. If you are a Facebook user, please consider liking the page and joining the group and get involved with some conversations with people between episodes or even while you listen. All the information you need about how to connect with Monster Kid Radio is on our website at monsterkidradio.net. You can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can send me a voicemail at 503 479 5657. That's 503 479 5MKR. Also on our website is where we announce what's coming up next on the show. Actually, I try to do it here on the episode as well. But if you head over there, you're going to see in the show notes what we've got coming up in episode 352. 
Another old friend is joining us. Frank Schuldiner is coming back to Monster Kid Radio. He is the author behind novels like The Triumph of Frankenstein and The Quest of Frankenstein, Napoleon's Vampire Hunters, and the upcoming The Devil Plague of Naples, which is the second book in his Napoleon's Vampire Hunters series. Vampire Hunters is what we're going to talk about. We're going to do our top three favorite vampire hunters from classic horror next week on the show. So come back for that. Later on this month, I've got Dwight Kemper coming to talk about Frankenstein meets the space monster and who knows what else. Maybe you'll hear a recording from what I'm going to this weekend. There's a fundraiser and a free mini toy show happening in Vancouver, Washington at the Kiggins Theater, 1011 Main Street in Vancouver. Vancouver Toy Junkies, I've been to one of their shows in the past. They put together a good group of vendors and I can't wait to see what they have. But the reason I'm going is because they are also showing a free movie. It's The Bride of Frankenstein. It's free at noon at the Kiggins Theater. I am not going to miss an opportunity to see Bride of Frankenstein on the big screen. Because it's free, I don't think anybody in the area really wants to miss this opportunity to see Bride of Frankenstein on the big screen. I am going to bring my recorder with me, and I'm even going to bring my video camera. Yeah, I've been making some noise about this in some places online. Let's go ahead and make it official here. Monster Kid Radio is going to be pressing into the YouTube platform. We're going to have some YouTube content coming from me. Some of it will be Monster Kid Radio related. Some of it will be more vlog stuff with just me talking about, well, who knows what. But that is officially going to happen. And like I said, I'm bringing my camera along to the toy show. So I'm trying to record a few things and put that online. See what happens. Again, that's this Saturday, January 6th. The toy show starts at 10. I'm going to try to get there around 11. The movie's at noon. Now, I probably won't be able to make this event, but, you know, if you're in Portland, January 8th, The White Eagle is showing two Vincent Price films, The Tingler and House on a Haunted Hill. What? (laughs) I had no idea this was even happening until I stumbled across a posting for it on Facebook when I was looking at the event page for the toy show happening in Vancouver. You know, I work until 7.45, so there's no way I can actually get out there to do it unless something catastrophic happens, and, well, that's probably not going to happen. But, man, (laughs) two Vincent Price films on a Monday? That'd make your Monday, so go check that out if you're in the area as well. And, again, let them know that you heard about it here on Monster Kid Radio. You know what? I think we're done. I think we need to wrap this up. I've been babbling a lot, and uh, I want to get the show out on time, so... Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song in the Hall of the Bachelor. That belongs to a surf band based out of St. Petersburg in the Russian Federation. That is the band The Slop Tones, and it's from their EP, Planet of the Bachelors, which you can get for six bucks. Head over to sloptones.bandcamp.com and pick up this EP as well as the rest of their albums. They're affordable and they're great. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.